Good morning, church family. I hope you're all doing well this morning. My name is Michelle Mari, and I'm going to be doing the Bible reading for us today. I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of God. Good morning and welcome once again, and a very happy new year to you all at the start of January. My name is Martin, I'm the rector of Christchurch Midrand, and if this is your first time With us, a very, very warm welcome. It's a great joy and pleasure to have you with us this morning online. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 13. You may want to turn to the passage, the passage that Michelle read to us. Uh, We're going to work our way through uh, the passage this morning, so it'll be a great help to me if you can turn to that passage. Um, Just to say the sermon is going to be a little bit longer this morning because uh, you need a proper introduction to Mark's gospel. So do just take note of that. And then just to mention that straight after uh, the talk, the sermon, we will be having the Lord's table. So you may want to fetch at some point uh, some water or grape juice or bread or a biscuit, and we'll be having the Lord's table straight after uh, the sermon. As you all know, I'm, I'm retiring as rector at the end of March uh, this year. Uh, Royden will become uh, the rector of Christchurch Midrand on the 1st of April. I'm not leaving Christchurch Midrand. I will remain on full-time staff, but my role will no longer be as rector, but as leadership mentor. The church council recommended that uh, Royden take a sabbatical before he takes over as rector, so he'll be away until the end of March. And then they've also recommended that I take a sabbatical from the 1st of April, Uh, so that I can get out of Royden's hair. Um, So these last three months as rector, I'll be preaching every Sunday, sorry for you, and uh, we're going to spend most of our time 
looking through Mark's gospel. I th- thought it was most appropriate for these three months for us to be focusing on, on Jesus, who he is and why he came and how we respond to him. So we'll probably only get through the first three, four chapters, but uh, we'll spend most of our time in Mark's gospel. Before I pray, let me just quickly show you a map of Israel so that you get your bearings as we start working through Mark's gospel. As you know, uh, Jesus lived and died in Palestine, present-day Israel. Let me show you the map. So the map should go onto the screen. Let me quickly run through that just to give you your bearings. On the left-hand side, you have the Mediterranean Sea, and then you have the provinces or regions uh, of the area. So at the bottom is Judea, and you'll notice just above Judea is Bethlehem, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is obviously where Jesus died, and then you see the region called Perea. Uh, That's really the wilderness area, and when Jesus was tempted, that's where he probably uh, went into that region, and uh, just to the left of the P there of Perea is the Jordan River, which is probably where John baptized Jesus. Then just up north, you have the regions of Galilee, Samaria. Just above Samaria, you'll notice uh, Nazareth, where Jesus spent his uh, his childhood years. And uh, in Mark's gospel, the first nine chapters, he spends almost exclusively up in the north, up in Galilee. And then from chapter 10 to the end of the book, he spends in the south in Judea. And Jerusalem. So that's just to give you your bearings. You may want to Google a map so that uh, as we work through Mark's gospel, you know where we are in terms of the geography. Well, let's now pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you that as we come into this new year, that it is not a new year for you because you are God. You know the beginning from the end. You are the Alpha and Omega, and we thank you, Lord, that time and history and space are all in your hands, and so, Lord, we come to you, the great God of all the universe, that you may draw near to us, that you may encourage us, that you may speak to us, but above all, Lord, that you may draw us closer to yourself, the source of life and the source of truth. So speak to us through your word, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. A good question to ask as we start in Mark's Gospel is, who is Jesus? So I googled the word Jesus, came up with over 700 million results. Here are some of the opinions about Jesus, and I'm not going to read them all. Jesus is real in the sense that he exists for those who want him to exist. Jesus was every man. His name could as well have been Jones. Too bad he was in a male form this time round. Better luck next time. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe I am the Son of God. He suffered from what contemporary psychologists now know to be delusions of grandeur, bipolar disorder, and probably acute schizophrenia. There have also been countless so-called portraits of Jesus. Jesus the Marxist, Jesus the freedom fighter, uh, Dan Brown's Jesus, Uh, Jesus of the Gnostic Gospels, which were written two, three hundred years after the birth of Christ and are totally different from the eyewitness records that we have here in the Gospels. And then, of course, you have the common view that Jesus is merely one amongst many. 
So for many people who believe in the supernatural, uh, there's a whole pantheon of gods, of idols, of gurus, of masters, and Jesus is just one of them. Now, I don't need to tell you that that's where our world is, that's where our culture is, that's where many of our friends are, our family are, perhaps, perhaps for you listening here this morning. And what our world finds increasingly scandalous is that Mark presents Jesus um, as absolutely unique, the one and only, the Son of God, the King, the Messiah, the, the, the only one through whom you may know God. So what we're going to do is we're going to examine the person of Jesus over the next eight, nine weeks. We're going to work through Mark's gospel, and we'll find out who is the real Jesus. And we'll be finding that out from, from the earliest source documents of Jesus. These are eyewitness records of people who were there. And we'll probably, in the next eight weeks, we'll probably only get through the first three or four chapters This morning, then, chapter 1, verse 1 to 13, it's somewhat introductory, and uh, I'm going to unpack it under four headings, his identity, his roots, his family, and his enemy. So those are the four principles that will help us to understand this passage. But before we do that, two side roads. Side road number one, who was Mark? Now, Mark never identifies himself as the author of this gospel. But the earliest and most important source came from a man called Papias, who was the bishop of Hierapolis, and he was writing between 90 and 100 AD. Mark is also called John Mark. You meet him in the book of Acts. And he was a disciple of the apostle Peter. In fact, he was Peter's scribe. He was Peter's translator. This is what Papias wrote about Mark, the, uh, the scribe, the translator, for the Apostle Peter, I quote, he, that's Mark, wrote accurately all that Peter remembered. For to one thing he gave attention, to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to make no false statements. In fact, if you go through the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice that almost nothing happens in which Peter is not present. So what we have here is actually Mark's uh, transcribing the eyewitness testimony of the of of the apostle Peter, and no one knew Peter, uh, no one knew Jesus better than Peter. So in Mark's gospel, we see, we hear, we almost touch Jesus through one of his dearest disciples. You really can't get closer than that. In a sense, what you have here in Mark's gospel is uh, Peter's memoirs. No date is given as to when it was written. Historians estimate that it was between the great fire in Rome in 64 AD and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. So probably it was around 65 AD, which means it was about 30, 35 years after the life and death of Jesus, which means that there were probably still many, many eyewitnesses alive. So it's almost as if Mark is saying, go and check it out. Side road number two is why should we read Mark? Now, I want to encourage you this week. uh, I know it's a busy week, but I want to encourage you this week to read through the whole of Mark's gospel, chapters 1 to 16. In fact, it will only take you one to two hours. Perhaps you've never read through the gospel in one sitting. Why not do that this week? Read through these 16 chapters, and what you'll notice is it's not dry history. 
It's full of action. It's more the doing of Jesus than the teaching of Jesus. The narrative has this, has this breathless speed, this, this abruptness about it. The word immediately, in some translations, uh, translations it says at once. But the word immediately comes up nine times here in chapter 1. I only noticed that this week as I was working on this passage. Notice verse 10. Uh, Jesus comes... Uh, he comes out of the water and immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Verse 18, there's Simon, uh, Simon Peter, that's the Apostle Peter and his brother Andrew. And we read verse 18, Jesus calls them and immediately they left their nets. Verse 20, same thing, there's James and John. And immediately he called them. And it's all in the present tense. So Mark is, Mark is telling us that this is not just a historical figure. No, he's alive, he's living. He's speaking to us today. Chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The first words of the gospel tell us that God has broken into history. The status quo is no more. It's a crisis. Anything can happen now. So Mark not only wants us to see that Jesus is a man of action, but that the living present tense Jesus calls us to take action, decisive action, uh, which we'll get to next week, God willing, in verse 15, repent and believe in the gospel. It's a new year, but it's not a normal new year, is it? Uh, the last uh, Time magazine in December had on its cover 2020 with a red cross uh, going through the words 2020 and written underneath were the words, the worst year ever. So we're all struggling. We're all struggling to make sense of the world. We're struggling to make sense of our lives, of the future. Some of us are, are, are struggling to prevent a sense of despair, of panic, uh, dread um, flowing over the brim. Perhaps that's where you are this morning. What to do? Well, drugs and drink will only make it worse. A kind of a false optimism that it's all going to be okay. Well, it's probably a lie. Well, what do we do? Don't look inside. Don't look in front. Don't look behind you. No, look up. Look at the Jesus through the lens of the Apostle Peter, through the writing of John Mark. And you will discover that the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ is the central event of the cosmos. It's the central event of human history, the central organizing principle of your life. Put another way, the whole story of the world and how we fit into it is most clearly understood when we look clearly at Jesus. You see, it's only his life that can make sense of ours. That's why the answer to our angst is not to look inside of you. No, it's to look at Jesus. And that's why we need to read John Mark's gospel. All right, let's get into our four principles. Principle number one, his identity. And we find that in verse one. So let me read that again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Now, remember in the original document, which was written in Greek, written by John Mark, there was no overall title like we have here, the Gospel according to Mark. There was no paragraph headings like we have here, John the Baptist prepares the way. There were no chapters or verse headings, as it were. Those were added in later to assist us and to help us. So verse 1 was actually the title of the book. And in the title, John Mark states right up front the purpose of the book, the punchline. So it's not like a detective novel where you have to uh, search for some hidden clues. No, Mark is quite up front in his title, verse 1. The word gospel was the Greek word evangelion. It was not a, it was not a book. It was not a religious word. In actual fact, it was a secular word. It meant good news. Or more strictly, the announcement of good news. And it was normally used in Roman times for the public announcement of a, of a victory in battle or of a royal birth, or of a royal wedding. So you'd have an an official of the Roman Empire going to towns and villages, making this announcement that a great great battle had been won. Um, In 1868, two stones with writing on them were found in a place called Prien, West Turkey. became known as the Prien Calendar Inscription. And it uses the Greek word evangelion, or gospel, in reference to the birth date of Emperor Augustus Caesar. The stones are dated 9 BC. It speaks of the birth date of Augustus Caesar as the beginning of the gospel, beginning of the good news, announcing his kingdom. Let me quote from part of it. Since providence, which has ordered all things, gave us Augustus, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. The birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the gospel, Evangelion, for the world. He surpasses all previous benefactors. End of quote. John Mark is writing round about 65 AD when the Romans were killing, persecuting Christians. Knowing the history, knowing the meaning of the word evangelion, he makes this extraordinary claim in chapter 1, verse 1. The real good news, says John Mark, is that the gospel is not about Caesar Augustus. No, the real good news is that the gospel is about Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior. And he didn't come from Rome. No, verse 9, he came from, from Nazareth in Galilee. Again, verse 1, the term son of God, it was used in the Old Testament, a key word, phrase, but it was also used as a title of honor for Roman emperors. The word, the term Jesus was quite a well-known name. It was a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Joshua, which means God is salvation. And then the third title here, which is part of the identity of Jesus, is the word Christ. Christ's not a name, it's not a surname. You're not going to find it under C in the Galilee telephone book. No, it's a title. It's a job description. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So Messiah and Christ are the same words. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek. And it means the anointed king, the reigning king, the ruling king. 
So when John Mark makes verse 1 the title of his book, 65 AD, it is highly provocative. It's almost treasonable. What he's saying is the true and rightful ruler of the empire is not Augustus, it's Jesus Christ. He's the real king. He's the true king. He's the cosmic king. He's the only son of God. Mark chapter 1 has echoes of Genesis 1. It's extraordinary. And the first and the most obvious echo is here in verse 1. So remember Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning God. Mark 1 verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. So in Genesis, God is the author of creation. In Mark, Jesus is the author of the new creation. The second beginning is no less momentous than the first. And that's Mark's point. Just just one last comment. Francis Schaeffer, in his brilliant book, he is there and he is not silent. I've just reread it over this Christmas period, and it is quite brilliant. He argues that there are only three possible answers to the question, what was there at the beginning? How did it all start? What is the source of existence? And Schaefer argues, I think quite correctly, that there are only three possible explanations. Number one, nothing. What Schaefer calls nothing, nothing. Not nothing plus energy, nothing plus motion, nothing plus matter. No, nothing, nothing. Now, folks, you all know that I'm not a scientific guy, but it really is quite illogical and unreasonable to have all that we see and are from nothing, nothing. Second option is an impersonal beginning. Now, the uh, the impersonal beginning, Schaefer says, may be mass, it may be energy, may be motion, but it is impersonal. And, of course, it doesn't answer the question. It can't answer the question, why are we personal? Why do we love? Why do we hate? Why do we long? Why do we have a conscience? Surely we're more than just impersonal plus chance plus time. It's most unlikely. Third option that Schaefer gives us, which is the most reasonable one, is that there's a personal beginning, which is precisely what Genesis 1 and Mark 1 are telling us. Genesis, in the beginning, God, a personal, infinite God. Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, a personal, infinite God. So the key to the universe, the key to history, the key to your place, to your future, to 2021, is not some philosophy, it's not some moral code, it's not something found inside of yourself, it's not Biden and Harris, it's not a reinvented ANC, it's not Pfizer or some other pharmaceutical company. No, it's a person. At the center of the universe is not a mathematical formula, it's a person. The infinite person of God, the infinite person of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the key to the universe. And if you haven't submitted to him, perhaps today is a good day. Principle number one, his identity. Secondly, his roots. And we're going to have a look at verse 2 and 3. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah prophesied, 
in 700 BC and Malachi prophesied in 400 BC that before the Messiah arrives, there will be a messenger, an Elijah-type messenger who would precede the king, preparing the way. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now that's precisely what we see in the ministry of John the Baptist, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And you'll notice verse 6, he's dressed in the very latest Elijah outfit. Now John was clothed with clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I think uh, locusts and wild honey was, was the original vegan-friendly. In a, in a COVID world where change is the only constant, isn't it comforting uh, to know that the rector of Christchurch Midrand still tells corny jokes and no one laughs at his jokes. Something hasn't changed. Now we, now we, now we all understand what it means to prepare the way for someone who is important. Because that's what John the Baptist is doing. So before the president makes his next, uh, next uh, TV announcement, uh, we told in advance that it's going to happen. Uh, we told on News 24, on SABC, on SATV, social media is all about. That's what John the Baptist is doing here. He's preparing the way. If the king of the Zulus, if the queen of England were to visit us post-COVID on a Sunday morning, well, we would let you all know. We would make an announcement over and over again. We would tell you how to behave. We tell Kate not to put the king of the Zulus on the T-roster. We tell uh, Black not to sing rap to the Queen. Black, for goodness sake, she's 94 years old. She went to school with, with Bach and Beethoven. Well, that's what's happening here. Mark is preparing the way. Not Mark, John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. A good question is, why does Mark take us back to the Old Testament prophets? Well, Mark wants us to understand that this Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophets. He's not, he's not a Johnny-come-lately. He's not an afterthought when all else fails. When Israel was in exile because of their rebellion against God, the Old, Testament's, the Old Testament prophets prophesied that God would send a Savior. He would send a king. He would send a Messiah who would establish a people, an eternal people, an eternal kingdom. Remember Isaiah 9. This was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so what we have here in verse 4 to 8 is John the Baptist preparing the way for the wonderful counselor, for the mighty God, for the everlasting Father, for the Prince of Peace. When you meditate on those names, doesn't it make your mouth water? He's not just a king, he's the king. 
So how does John the Baptist prepare the way for the coming king by showing people their sin, by showing people their need of a savior, by showing people that the Messiah was imminent, which brings us to the baptism of Jesus, our third point. First of all, his identity. Secondly, his roots. Thirdly, his family. And let's read from verse 9 to 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, if you look at this passage, verse 9 comes as a real, real surprise. We've just been preparing for the coming of the only Messiah, the only Savior, the only King, the only Son of God. There are trumpets, there's bugles, there's a French horn, lights, camera, action. Surprise, shock. The frame is filled with Nazareth. Whoever, whoever has heard of Nazareth? Where on earth is Galilee? I thought Jordan was a brand. And you want me to believe that this is the great king, the only king, the cosmic king. It beggars belief. But you see, that's, that's the extraordinary God of the Bible. He often works in the most unexpected ways. He can turn good out of evil. He can turn a crisis, a plague, to his advantage. He can rescue the cosmic world not from Rome or Washington or Beijing, but from, from Nazareth, a one-horse town in a third-rate province at the back end of the Roman Empire. Don't for one moment underestimate the purposes, the plans, the providence, the ingenuity of God's plan in your life right now. 2021. It's COVID-19. It's Gauteng, South Africa. This is not God's maiden flight. He's not an apprentice. He's not a rookie. He knows exactly what he's doing in your life right now. Perhaps it's time to trust him. The second surprise, also here in verse 9, is the Messiah, the Son of God, lines up with sinners confessing their sins, coming for baptism. What was he thinking? In Mark's Gospel, the word baptism isn't only used for water baptism. Jesus also uses the word as a symbol of the cross. And you can pick that up in chapter 10, verse 38. What Jesus is doing here is that though he was without sin, not needing a baptism of repentance, he's identifying with sinners. That's what he's doing. And that's exactly what he did on the cross, a baptism of fire, taking our sin upon himself, quenching the wrath of God on behalf of sinners like you and me. So in some ways here in verse 9, John Mark is giving us a first hint of the cross, the first stench of a dead body. So thus far, John Mark has answered two key questions. Question one, who is the man Jesus? The answer is verse one, he is the Christ, the Son of God. 
Question two, why did he come? Well, the answer, verse nine, to identify with sinners. A baptism of water, a baptism of fire, a baptism of wood. Then you'll notice verse 10 to 11, there are three critical events there. The heavens are torn open, the spirit descends, and a voice is heard from heaven. Now, from the prophet Malachi to up until John the Baptist, there was 400 years of silence, no prophet from God, no voice from heaven. And yet the Old Testament prophets prophesied that precisely these supernatural events that we read in verse 10 and 11 would occur with the coming of the Messiah. They would occur with the dawning of a new age, a new, a new eschatological age. These are the things that would, would occur when the great king arrives. Not a king, but the king. Now we need to be very careful here. Mark is not telling us about the work of the Holy Spirit in your life or my life. Don't expect voices from heaven. Don't expect a dove on your head. In fact, if you see a dove approaching, mind your head because we know what doves do. In fact, notice verse 10 uh, that a dove didn't descend on the head of Jesus, but the Spirit descended on him like a dove. So this is not what the Holy Spirit does in your life or my life. We'll come to that later in Mark. But what the Holy Spirit did in the life of Christ, the Messiah, the King. And let's not whitewash or Photoshop the miraculous nature of what's happening here. It is miraculous. It's supernatural. The heaven is the heavens are torn open, they torn asunder. Uh, the spirit descends like a dove. There's a voice from heaven. It's clearly supernatural, and that's not illogical. It's not unreasonable if you think about it. We're talking about God. We're talking about God taking cosmic action to destroy our three great enemies, sin and death and Satan. We're talking about God ushering in a new age. You'd expect it to be supernatural, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be strange if it wasn't? In the creation account of Genesis 1, there are three persons active in creation. The creation of the world. You have God, you have God's spirit, and you have God's word. Check it out. Genesis 1, 1 to 3. It's quite extraordinary. In the first three verses of the Bible, we are introduced to the triune God. The same three parties are active here in verse 10 and 11. The Father is the voice, the Spirit is the dove, the Son is the word. And John Mark is intentionally pointing us back to creation, to the beginning. Just as the original creation was the work of the triune God, now the recreation, the renewal, is the work of the triune God. That's how cosmically central is the coming of Christ. It's as profound as the creation of the universe. When Jesus comes out of the water, the Father covers him with words of love. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Meanwhile, the Spirit covers him, the Son, with power. And the Son responds to the Father in obedience. 
This has been the interior life of the Trinity for all eternity. It's a glimpse of the heart of reality. It's the essence of the universe, God in three persons. So, as I said before, at the center of the universe is not a philosophy, is not an impersonal mathematical formula. No, at the center of the universe is a triune God, one God made up of three persons, perfectly communicating with each other, perfectly sharing with each other, perfectly loving each other. And we have a glimpse of that here in verse 9 to 11. C.S. Lewis, who is probably my favorite author, he said, I quote, In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance, end of quote. Tim Keller puts it so well, I quote, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, each enjoying the other, each serving, adoring the other, each, uh, instead of being self-centered, self-focused, their mutual self-giving love. No person in the Trinity demands the others to revolve around him, but each of them voluntarily circles and orbits around the others. End of quote. That was what the Trinity was doing before creation. That was what the Trinity was doing at creation. That is what the triune God is doing at the beginning of the recreation, continuing this divine dance. A good question is, why would a triune God create the world? Why would a triune God create the world? If God was unipersonal, only one person, You could say he created the world because he was lonely. He needed someone to speak to. He needed someone to love. But that's obviously not true of the triune God. Their their love for each other is much more pure and much more powerful than humans could ever give them. There's only one answer. He created the world not to get love, but to give love. Not to get joy, but to give joy. He created us to invite us into the dance. And you don't enter the dance by by trying to be spiritual. You don't enter the dance by praying when you're in trouble. You don't enter the dance by wanting God to orbit around you, supplying your shopping list. No, you enter the dance when you respond to what God says. If you glorify me, if you center your entire life on me, If you find me beautiful for who I am, then you will enter the dance, which is precisely what you were made for, what you were created for, what you were built for. Obvious question is, have you entered the dance? Well, let me close by moving from dancing with the Trinity to dancing into battle. Very quickly and briefly, his enemy, verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. 
Well, after the baptism, there's no, there's no celebration. There's no after party. There's no time to catch your breath. The shock here, <laughs> notice the shock, verse 12, is that it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who immediately drives him into the wilderness in order that he may be tempted by Satan. So at first you think it's a misprint, it's a typo. But it's not. 1 John 3 verse 8, the Apostle John says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So in effect, what the Spirit is saying to Jesus is, Jesus, here's the reason you came. Here's the reason you were commissioned in your baptism. You came to be sent into warfare, into conflict. So let's get into it straight away, says the Spirit. John Mark, knowing Genesis 3, intentionally wants us to remember that the first Adam was tempted by Satan and failed. But here in Mark 1, the second Adam is also tempted by Satan, but he doesn't fail. Thank God. Here we have the beginning of the end of the curse of sin, of Satan. To be continued. Well, let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. And you may want to speak to God, tell him where you are. Almighty Heavenly Father, we, we stand in awe again of the infinite, omnipotent, everlasting God of all creation. We stand in awe because we are finite and fallen and you are infinite and holy. Oh, Lord, will you forgive us for not trusting you as we ought? Forgive us for not remembering that you are trustworthy and you know exactly what you are doing. Forgive us, Lord, when we've tried to find answers and meaning and solace in the trivia and trinkets of this world and not in the Savior, the King, the Messiah, the Son of God. Oh Lord, will you deal with us? Will you forgive us? Will you cleanse us? But above all, will you cause us to drink deeply from the living water, which is Jesus? And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Now just before we come to the Lord's table, let me just encourage you that 
this year, I think we really want to be serious with God. There's no other way, is there? And I want to encourage you not only to read through Mark's gospel this, this, uh, this coming week, and next week, God willing, we'll look at verses 14 through to verse 28, so especially do have a look at that. But I want you to encourage to buy two books. You may be hard up, but if you only buy two Christian books this year, there's one book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's a brilliant book. It's not light reading. But if you're going to be serious with God, you need to understand God seriously. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. You can get it on Amazon, on Kindle. The second book is not about knowing God, but about feeling God. And it's a book by a man called Dane Ortland, O-R-T-L-A-N-D, called Gentle and Lowly. Magnificent. Why don't you, no, not, not why don't you, I want to urge you, get those two books and read them and study them and have a pencil and paper and make notes so that we can be serious with God. The way to be serious with God is to study God, and to get to know him better. Well, let me stop there.